Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gabeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down. Our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him therefore it has told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David this in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, 
a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. Pardon me. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 29 verses is a lot. There's some running themes that I think are helpful for us. Of course, we already read from Psalm 54 this morning, and the key verse in there being verse 4, the Lord is my help and the upholder of my life. David wrote that psalm after the Ziphites had decided to sell him out. The Ziphites were a group of people that were within the tribe of Judah, and if you remember, David himself was in the tribe of Judah. So the betrayal there seemed especially sharp to David in this time of wilderness wandering. But this story, as we look at the whole chapter, reveals a truth that has been true all throughout Scripture. We see that God is not a distant deity who perhaps only hit that first domino and started creation and started the world spinning. The Lord is the upholder of my life. In the context of all creation, in all of time, God is the one who, according to Paul in Acts chapter 17, grants breath and life and everything to all of his creation. So how is it then, as we look at Psalm 23, how is it that the Lord upholds David's life? Because if we could put ourselves, and and, you know, I know sometimes my imagination is very rusty, and I've found that I've needed to revitalize my imagination in coming to 1 Samuel every week. I needed to remind myself that where David is right now is a really tough spot. We read 1 Samuel 23, perhaps with the knowledge that indeed David will become king someday. And it's very easy for us then to look at the story and go, David, you know, it's all going to work out in the end. It's all okay. Has anyone ever told you that before, by the way? And you've been like, how do you know that? Right? I, this is what I, I have a hard time with, even down to little things like, like telling my kid when they're, when they're sick, when she's sick, to, to it's, it's all going to be okay. I mean, generally, that's true, right? But I also don't want to you know, put this weight of, of saying like, hey, you know, what you're in right now, it really doesn't matter. God perhaps doesn't even care so much. He just wants you to look to the end and say everything's going to be okay. The truth that we see in Scripture is that he's the upholder of our life, that he is there with us in the middle of the storm, and he does indeed promise us that there is a future. But we who know Christ know that we cannot put our hope in a future here in this world as this world is. And this is what David's learning. How is the Lord upholding David in this season of his life? Remember, this is a season of preparation for him. We saw in previous chapters that God is not simply sending David out in the wilderness just to see what happens. But he's actually preparing him for the thing that's coming next, for his kingship over all of Israel. So how is the Lord upholding David in his season of preparation? Is an important question for us. But it's only going to be realized if we're able to come to the next question of how is he upholding you in the season of life you find yourself today? David's been on the run from Saul for quite a while now. We can imagine that gets old really quickly. 
David probably feels like, although I didn't think they had pet hamsters, but I, I had this image in my head of a hamster running on a hamster wheel, consistently, you know, running and running and running and getting nowhere. I imagine this is how David felt being chased by Saul day after day after day. We even kind of get that from our passage this morning. In verse 15, sorry, not verse 15, turn the right page, 14, Saul sought him every day, every single day. David didn't wake up on the Sabbath and go, hey, it's the Sabbath, it's the day of rest. I'm sure Saul's going to take a break. Saul is obsessed. Let's not forget that. Saul has lost his very potential to do anything besides Seek after David, it seems, until we come to the end of our passage today. I wonder if you sometimes feel that day after day, you're doing the same thing, running on that hamster wheel constantly and seeming like maybe you're getting nowhere. I would liken it to things like laundry and dishes. I love the feeling, and not that... Not that I get this from laundry and dishes, but I love to pursue that feeling that something is complete and done, and I can shelf it in my mind and say, that's all over. But guess what? The kids keep using all the plastic plates, and it seems like you pull it out of the dishwasher, and there has been times where we've had to literally set the table out of the dishwasher, and it especially feels then that I'm, am I on this hamster wheel? Am I just going to be washing dishes for the rest of my life? And I mentioned laundry, but I don't really do the laundry, so I can't speak to that. In these small things, it can feel like we are constantly running and getting nowhere. What about the bigger things? What about the fact that you maybe just can't imagine going to work tomorrow morning? Because the email inbox is going to be overflowing. Because there's going to be a list of papers on your desk. Because because that task that you didn't get to last week is still sitting there. And it's going to be attended to by new friends. Other chores. You've barely just finished the dishes. And the sink is full again. Well, again, David wrote Psalm 54 about his struggle in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. And the key verse again, behold which is such a good Bible word, isn't it? What does behold mean? I ask you, congregation. Yeah, look, right? I think some of you said see. That's also a good answer. Yeah, see, look. That's all behold means. It's just a fancier way of saying it. Behold, God is my helper. See, part of what David is getting prepared for in this season of life is to proclaim that the Lord is indeed his helper. That the Lord is the upholder of his life. And I looked up that word in the Hebrew. To uphold in this context is not perhaps too surprising, but it gave us some other helpful words as well. To uphold in this case means to lean on. Or perhaps to lay down, lay something down upon. Or to rest. To find support in something. So the Lord, the upholder of your life, church. It's a beautiful truth to rest on. But the opposite of being upheld, perhaps, is falling apart, right? And we feel that often. My, my kids are homeschooled, and my, my wife is a former preschool teacher. And so she's got all these wonderful things that she sets up for them to do. And uh, one of the things that she makes for them often is a sensory bin. And this is always like a big risk, 
in the Vion household to set up a sensory bin because they always include thousands upon thousands of beads or beans or gems or something in there that kind of creates the base. I should have had a picture of this, but ask Sarah if you're curious, I guess. Then cleanup time came. All the black beans all in there. I think it was black beans or something. Yeah, it was black beans. All of them were in the bowl. My four-year-old picked up the bowl, took two steps, I mean, not even two steps, let's be honest. And as if she just forgot how to hold things, and, and not only all over the floor, but under the floor a little bit, in between the chimney and the floor, everything fell apart. Now, you can't put too much on a four-year-old who's trying to be helpful and lets everything fall apart. But it is easy for us to see our own guilt in the ways that our lives fall apart sometimes, right? We can see that where I am is at least in part due to where I have brought myself, to what I've done that has brought me here. But but look at David. I mean, his life feels like he's falling apart multiple times in this passage. But it's where God has brought him that is so evident. And why it is so important for him to learn that the Lord is the upholder of his life. So I'd like to ask you this morning, as we walk through this passage, to consider five areas of life where the Lord upholds you. Here's the first one. I'd like you to consider these five areas of life and to put your trust in his upholding power. So number one, trust him to uphold you in the task he has before you. Remember, the task he has before you. This is our starting point. Why is David in the wilderness? Why isn't he in Bethlehem tending the sheep of his father? Why isn't he at the the throne room of Saul playing songs? Why isn't he out on the battlefield? He's had plenty of jobs. He's had plenty of places to find himself. But he finds himself in the wilderness wandering from stronghold to stronghold. And at the beginning of 23, we don't know exactly who they are, But David is told that the Philistines have attacked Keilah. I think David is aware that even though things don't seem to be how they ought to, I think he's aware that he is still the lowercase m Messiah. If you remember, Messiah means the anointed one, the chosen one by God to save God's people. We call Jesus our Messiah. Jesus Christ, Christ means Messiah. It's the same word. But in the Old Testament, there were multiple messiahs, those chosen by God for a temporary role. (coughs) Excuse me. He remembers that he is a lowercase messiah here and that he has a job to do. And and I don't think it's just strictly him going, well, I am the messiah after all. I better go save Keilah. But David does have a heart for his people. We saw it in the last chapter where people were gathering around him as though he were a shepherd again. So this makes sense as a Messiah. It makes sense as a shepherd. It makes sense as a soldier. David is all ready to go into Keilah and save them from the Philistines. So he first asks God, is this the thing I should do? God's answer boils down to this. Go and save. Now, if God told you to go and save a city, what would you do? Probably because most of us don't have military background, we might be thinking, I don't know if you're talking to the right person here. We might have a Gideon moment. We might have a Jonah moment. But for David, God has told him, go and do that thing that I have proven I can do through you multiple times in the past. 
I mean, God's word to David right here is simple, but it is powerful. It is effective. It is an upholding word in David's life. But then he talks to his ragtag crew. Remember, these were the discontent of Israel. Those who had nowhere else to go and looked to David to be the one to save them. And when they hear the idea of, hey, we're going to go and save these people, Akilah, they have no interest in saving anyone else. They say, look, we're already terrified. We're in Judah. Listen, David, Saul knows you're from Judah. He's going to be looking for us here. And now you not only want us to be in the line of sight of King Saul, who wants to kill you more than anything, but now you're going to take us to the Philistines? Remember, these discontent were not those that enlisted into battle. These are drafted by their discontentment with the world. These are those who said, I have nowhere else to go but to David right now. We can't imagine that all of them have military experience or even the sort of talent that is needed for it. They're not interested in saving others. They're interested in finding themselves saved. They fall apart before they can even line up for battle. Think ahead in the New Testament to Peter. And that awesome moment in Matthew 14 where they're out on the sea and there's a terrible storm and they see Jesus out there. And what does Peter say when he sees Jesus? If it is you, yeah, call me to come to you right now. And so what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, "Um, Peter, I'm the Messiah, capital M. This is a stormy sea. You can't walk on water. I can do that because I can do it. No, this, I mean, this is ridiculous um, alternative history I'm offering you here. He simply says, come. And so Peter does. And he does pretty well at first. But what happens? What does he see? That's right. He sees the waves, Matthew tells us. And when he sees the waves or when he sees the winds, he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he begins to fall apart. Now you know the end of that story that Jesus reaches down and holds him up. He pulls him back out. David asks the Lord again about the Philistines because his ragtag crew is falling apart. In the moment where they've come to do what they've been trained to do, they fall apart. They can't do it. So David asks the Lord again. And and I like this is kind of something that happens in this first part of this chapter a couple times. David kind of asks the same question in a different way multiple times. But this time he's clearly asking because there are those who don't believe. So he says, hey, can you... Can you tell me one more time so that I can tell the troops that you're here? So God then says for the first of nine times in this chapter, something about a hand. And again, this I want you to link this in your mind to the title for this week, and you'll see it next week as well in the next chapter, because some surprising turn for Saul is going to happen as he finds himself in the hand of his own enemy. But right now, the Lord says, I will give them into your hand. Now, this is a matter of control. It's a, it's a term for victory, right? But it also goes again with our, our theme that we got from Psalm 54 in reflection of this chapter. That it is the Lord who upholds my life. He is the one who has me in his hands right now. So it's the best thing he could have said to David. It's the Lord's hands, not David's, not Saul's, but the Lord alone who is strong to save and to hold us up. And so he promises to give the Philistines into the hand of David. I have a lot of um, kid uh, illustrations this morning, I guess. It was an interesting week for um, the Vion household. But yesterday, um, before the snow, (laughs) 
my six-year-old has really been enjoying swim lessons. She's been doing really well with it. Yesterday, she was practicing floating on her back, and she was really enjoying it as long as she knew that her instructor's hand was just beneath her back, and she could feel her hand on her back holding her up. She was ready to put her arms out, her legs out, stretch out, and just float and enjoy it. So her instructor says, do you know that I won't let you go under, even if it feels like you are going under? And I didn't quite hear her response, but, you know, her eyes got big. I think so. I think as soon as the question comes out, it was like the confidence kind of dissipated slightly, right? I'm pretty sure I'm not going to go in as long as I know you're holding me up. Well, well, the next part of her training and swim lessons was to remove the hand from her back and actually start floating. Because you're not really floating on your back until the hand is gone. It was tough for her to learn that. I could see, you know, her start to sink a little bit and the water, the water fill up to, to right around her eyes and her eyes get really big again. But it was such an illustrative moment for me in thinking about what is it like when the Lord sort of seems like he's letting go of us? And that feeling, again, like the instructor said, do you know I won't let you go even if it feels like I'm letting you go? Does it ever feel like the Lord is letting you go? Does it ever feel like you go, um... God, all my Bible knowledge says that you're always here. You'll never leave me or forsake me. But where are you? Why am I not getting that word that David got about, uh, I've given them into your hand. My hand is upholding you. Where is that right now? Do you ever have those moments? Did you even have one last week, perhaps? Because I sure did. I sure started to wonder, where are you, Lord? Especially difficult for us in the time where we are seeking what the Lord has for us and saying, Lord, I'm surrendering my life to you. I want you to be in charge. Show me what my next step is. And it feels like he's distant. And it's almost, it's almost a little bit frustrating, if we can be honest. Those moments that we feel we're drawing near to the Lord and then it feels like he's further away than before. It's as though, like, God, I'm finally doing what you asked me to do. And you're silent. What's going on? Trust him to uphold you in the task he has set before you. First lesson for David this week. Secondly, trust him to uphold you with wisdom from his word. Because indeed, David does at moments here feel as though the hand of the Lord is stepping back. But God answers the concerns of the troops. The promised victory is won. And he grants David wisdom to know what to do to escape Saul. Because, of course, as soon as he saves Keilah, what happens? Saul finds out. I know where David is now. I've got him. And I know something about Keilah, Saul says. I know that that place has bars and gates. There's one way in and one way out. He is stuck. This made Saul's day. Interestingly, though, Every time Saul finds something out in this passage, do you notice what happens? David also finds out. He finds out that Saul's after him, which is like, well, that's not anything new, right? Been spinning on this hamster wheel for a while here, Saul. David, who is taking care of the Philistine problem, who has done what God's asked him to do, may now be feeling for just a moment, perhaps, before he receives wisdom from the Lord to do what's next, Excuse me, he may be feeling but the, the truth of that old saying, no good deed goes unpunished. 
He did the right thing. Why isn't it working out well for him? We have to learn this, don't we? Doing the right thing doesn't mean everything goes easy. Oftentimes doing the right thing results in further difficulty. And there then, in verses 6 through 14, we have our next mention of the hand. This one being Saul's, his prideful belief that he now has control again. The Lord even, Saul says. Isn't that ironic? The Lord has given David into my hand. It's fascinating because you could say, well, ultimately, no, Saul. Like, you're not going to get to kill David. We know that. And yet, the Lord was the one who told David to go to Keilah, which would alert Saul. And would make it feel as though David is now in the hand of Saul. Well, tell me, church, whose hand would you rather be in? Would you rather be in the hand of the Lord or the hand of a wicked king who wants you dead? It's pretty obvious. No good deed goes unpunished. Saul knows where David is, and he thinks he has him cornered. Now, it's funny in verses 6 through 14 how the author cuts back and forth between Saul and David, like sentence by sentence. But it points out that whenever Saul thinks he has the upper hand, David, because he seeks the Lord's wisdom and direction, even when perhaps he wonders if the Lord's hand is indeed holding him up, David seeks the Lord's wisdom, he seeks the Lord's direction, and because of that, he's always at least one step ahead of Saul. Now, one step ahead of your conflicts doesn't feel that great, does it? right? Like, y'all are at church here, so you could say at least you're one step ahead of whatever problem you have to face after church is over, right? But one step ahead doesn't always feel that great. We want to be more like six or seven steps ahead. We want to be well out of the sight of opposition, whatever it might be in our lives. But the Lord has only really given David in this passage that one step beyond where Saul is. He is only just out of reach, He is nearly in Saul's hand, but the Lord upholds him. So David asks the Lord again. He asks him two questions. Will the city give me up to Saul, and will Saul come after me? And the answers are both yes. Now, he asks these questions after the author points out that Abiathar shows up, and he has the ephod. Remember, the ephod was something that the priests would wear. And within this ephod, we can assume were the Urim and Thurim, which are things that we don't hear about too much. But they were used to basically ask a prayer of the Lord and get an answer. And they were, they were used for yes or no answers. So David now, because Abiathar is with him, he has a new way to inquire of the Lord, a new way to hear from God. And so God reveals the truth to him. Yes, he is going to come after you. Yes, the city is going to give you up. So what's the wisdom that the Lord gives him? In verse 13, they went wherever they could go. <laughs> kind of sounds funny. Where'd you go today? Wherever we could go. Well, that doesn't sound like a destination to me, does it? That sounds like you're just wandering to and fro everywhere you could go. That's literally what the Hebrew word means, is wandering to and fro wherever they could find a place and only for a short time. Why? Because verse 14 was there. Saul was seeking him every day. And yet, in that seeking, and in them not finding a place to lay their head, much like the capital M Messiah, Jesus Christ, was unable to find a place to lay his head, a place to truly call home, to make his true base of operations. So this Messiah in 1 Samuel 23 went wherever he could go. He's a fugitive after all. Running from the law, the best hiding place is going to be different every night, as often as possible. And yet God's sovereign hand is at work holding David up through wise tactics. Back to this idea of wisdom, I think that as I ask people how to pray for them, it's got to be in the top five. 
how can I pray for you? I just need wisdom, right? We good? Maybe. Did I get quiet? Well, if you were falling asleep. I don't think I'm doing anything different, am I? Check one, two. All right. Sorry about that, folks. If I asked any one of you if you wanted more wisdom today, what would you say? Yes. Only a fool would say no. Uh, ironic. person who doesn't have any wisdom at all would say, I don't need it. But a person who is wise recognizes that they need wisdom. They need wisdom from the Lord. And so the Lord grants that to David here. He gives him wise battle tactics. And they don't seem wise in the world's eyes. It would seem the best thing to do just in a matter of military design would be to say, let's figure out where we can get a good position and then let's attack Saul. We know he's looking after us, but looking for us, but we can come and we could get the first strike in and maybe we could win. And yet godly wisdom doesn't call David to just destroy his enemies. Godly wisdom actually calls him to run. Godly wisdom calls him to move from place to place. And that's not necessarily something we really want to hear, right? Run from your enemies. Great. Sounds fun. God, thank you. For a time, trusting that you were in the Lord's hand, trusting that as David said in the Psalm 54 and in many other Psalms, that the Lord is going to repay evil for evil. Vengeance belongs to him, not to David. This is the wisdom that the Lord offers us. Do you need wisdom today? Because the Lord definitely has a plan to uphold you through the wisdom of his word. Wisdom from the Lord trusts in the sovereign direction of the Lord over and yet through human plans. Over human plans in that what God says goes. Through human plans in that the revealed will of God is found in our human actions. Proverbs 16.9 is probably my favorite proverb. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Plan your way, church. Trust the Lord to establish your steps. Trust him to uphold you in the task he set before you. Trust him to uphold you with wisdom from his word. And now trust him to uphold you with the hope of his promise. Verse 15, we find Jonathan again. We love it when Jonathan shows up. He's the complete opposite of his father, Saul, isn't he? Totally on the other page. His dad was too much of a fool to find David, and yet Jonathan is able to get to him. And, of course, they have totally different purposes. Jonathan is not saying, let me take out David for my dad, and I'll, I'll make him really proud. No, he's not doing that at all. David is Jonathan's best friend. And we get a little picture of where David is by Jonathan's words, don't be afraid. We could see that David is in one of those moments again. He's afraid, just as he was not too many chapters ago. Chapter 20 and chapter 21. And while he was strengthened by the Lord's presence, by the reminder of the Lord's past faithfulness, and by the surprising grace, do you remember what he did to get out of um, King Achish's court? He acted crazy and drooled all over his beard. The Lord delivered him in that surprising way. 
Even though those things are true and he has that, he is overwhelmed yet again. Do you ever get frustrated that you have the same struggles over and over? That you're riding that wheel, that hamster wheel, over and over again? The same kind of fear creeps into your heart? The same temptations to sin that you could just kind of look at now and say, I don't know how much longer I'm going to last in resisting temptation. Do you have a friend like Jonathan? He's the one who gets in contact with you at just the right time. You might even imagine David sitting around the fire, wringing his hands and thinking, I don't know where Saul is. I really wish Jonathan was here. Look at verse 16 at what Jonathan does for David. The author tells us Jonathan strengthened his hand in God. There's our word hand again to go with the theme of upholding, to go with the theme of the hand of the Lord, directing all of these things, directing what is in the control of David's hand and what is in the control of Saul's hand. Ultimately, David isn't in control. God is upholding his life. So how did Jonathan strengthen David's hand? What was it that he said besides don't be afraid? He reminded him that the Lord's promise is going to come to pass. He says, you will be king and I will be at your side. Even my father Saul knows this. Great encouragement from one that David is unfortunately never going to see again. Had no idea. As you, as you come to the end of this where it says that David went his way and Jonathan went his way, you imagine that in that parting there was sadness, but there was also hope because he had been strengthened in the Lord. His hand had been strengthened. So I'm going to see Jonathan again, but he's not going to. It can be tough. But it wasn't the promise that David would see Jonathan again that truly upheld him. It was the promise that God's word always comes to pass. John Woodhouse has an excellent commentary, and I really want you to take this to heart. Because the action of God's hand is not entirely or only, merely about his sovereign rule. I'll just say what Woodhouse said. He says, God's upholding and strengthening in our lives is based not merely on his sovereign rule, that is his ability to rule over all things. It's not merely based on his sovereign rule, but it's based on the promises made to David. You see, God's sovereignty gives us the how of upholding his people. But the why, why uphold your people, Lord? When we are so apt to fall apart, to spill the beans all over the floor, to mess up all the plans that you've had for us, to not be willing to, to float in the water for half a second, knowing that your hand is underneath us, willing to catch us when we fall. Why does the Lord uphold us by his mighty right hand? Because of his promise. This is incredible, church. It's something that we must grab onto. See, God's faithfulness to you that we sang about of his goodness and his faithfulness it's not just because he can though he certainly can he is sovereign it is because he wants to uphold you his desire is to uphold you he has made a promise and he's not just the promise keeper that says well i made a promise so i better do it his promises are made and sealed in the love of christ trust him to uphold you with the hope of his promise do you have a promise that you can cling to? I know I've asked this question many times, but I'll keep on asking it. Try this one, Isaiah 41.10, where he says to his people, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
Trust the Lord to uphold you in the task he has before you. Trust the Lord to uphold you with wisdom from his word. Trust him to uphold you with the hope of his promise and trust him to uphold you when the enemy seeks to destroy you now in our last section. The chase intensifies in verse 19. Jonathan's gone, and he knows, David knows, Saul's coming after me. We've got to do something. We need a plan. What are we going to do? How are we moving forward? Well, verse 19 says that these dastardly Ziphites report to Saul about David's location. They say everything Saul wants to hear. Do everything that's in your heart, O king. Say, we're going to deliver David into your hand. Isn't it fascinating that God is speaking to David, and David is hearing the word of God, that, that God's saying, I... I'm not going to put you in Saul's hand. I'm going to put the Philistines in your hand. He's telling him the truth. The Ziphites, they have no sovereignty. They have no ability to follow up on these promises. They sound as if they're trying to gain something in David's demise, trying to find some favor with King Saul. In verse 20, they put into words that are exactly what Saul wanted to hear, your heart's desire and into your hand. He's always ready to accept whatever advances his plans, as we talked about worldly leadership last week. Worldly leadership is willing to take in anybody that seems helpful to their plans and dismiss them when they're not helpful anymore. Well, David finds out. Again, we see this back and forth. Saul finds out, David finds out. Saul finds out, David finds out. The Lord always keeps his people one step ahead of their demise. His men clear their camp quickly get moving into the wilderness again. Saul is moving in closer and closer. The scene ends with a climactic near encounter with Saul that's surprisingly canceled by the report of a Philistine attack. Just like the beginning of the chapter where David was directed to go and save Keilah from the Philistines, Saul surprisingly gives up his obsession for a moment. Why? Why would Saul suddenly say, you know what? I forgot I have a job to do. I am the Messiah after all. I need to save God's people from the Philistines. I don't think it's a change of heart in Saul. I think it is the compulsion of God working through this report that was given to Saul. The Philistines are attacking. And God sovereignly moves Saul out of the realm, out of range from capturing David so that David can escape. And they even named that place after the escape of David, a rock of escape. David is saved again by God's surprising grace. And he later writes after this instant again that the Lord is his helper, the one who upholds his life. In a few minutes, we'll sing, He Will Hold Me Fast, where one of the lines says, When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. Contrasting statement. The holding, upholding, loving presence of God causes the tempter, causes our enemy to fail. He supports us. We can lean on him. Trust him to uphold you in the task he sets before you. Trust him to uphold you with wisdom from his word. Trust him to uphold you with the hope of his promise and trust him to uphold you when the enemy seeks to destroy you. Church, if we don't trust the Lord to uphold us, we will fall apart. Sin brings death and disintegration. It destroys our relationship with the Lord. And yet our Messiah, our capital M Messiah, Jesus, came to break sin's hold on us and restore us to a place where we could rely on him to hold us up. What David learned here was the importance of actively leaning on the Lord. 
Yes, he is upholding him. We have to trust in that in moments that we can't lean on him, where we, we don't feel the ability to run to his word or, or sing his songs or even ask a friend for prayer. We need to rely on the fact that God is upholding us at all times in Christ if we are his. But David is learning here the importance of actively leaning on, seeking the support of the Lord in the midst of the task that he has in the midst of the enemy being just steps away from him. It's hard to see how he's holding us sometimes, though. I bet when David was cornered and Saul's forces surrounded him, his location, I bet David had some doubt in his heart that that fear crept up again, and yet he held on to the one holding him. So let's hold fast, church. Let's lean on. Let's lay our cares. Let's rest and find support in the God who upholds us in his love. Remember David's hand, Saul's hand, the hand of the Philistines, and today the hand of world leaders, the hand of your boss, your own hand. There is one that is overall upholding your life in him because he gave his life for you. Listen to Jesus' words in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Jesus' hand, God the father's hand, they uphold you. No one snatches from the father. No one snatches from Jesus Christ. Your eternity is secure in Christ if you trust him, if you trust in his promises. Remember, 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And that is what we need to do. No matter what part of this story seems to fit where we are right now, let's say amen. Let's say let it be so to the glory of God. That whatever trial he's set before us, he's going to grant us wisdom. He's going to remind us the hope of his promise. And even when the enemy seeks to destroy us, he will hold us fast.